1: Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're going on a journey on American Indian Living. It's a journey to a place that you've never been to before because we're speaking about how you can go to places that you've only dreamed about but have never been there. It may sound like a strange topic, but we believe it's a topic that can make a difference for your whole person health and make a dramatic difference in the lives around you, those that you love, and those that you associate with. To guide us on this journey is John Neeland. John is the President and Investment Advisor Representative at JCN Financial and Tax Planning Group. John, it is great to have you with us. Great to be here. John, it, uh, it's exciting to have you on the show. You are an author. You've written a new book, How to Live the Life You've Yet to Dream. I know that's been generating a lot of interest. Just give us, in, in a nutshell, what inspired you to put pen to paper and to get this book out there.
2: I had never had any intention of ever writing a book in my entire life. This is something that came about for my employees uh, for the last six or seven years. They've, from time to time, urged me. They would say, John, you should write a book. And I would let that go in one ear and out the other because I had no interest in writing a book. And then I hired a new man about last uh, December. And his second time went to lunch. He said, John, you should write a book. So I said, well, why is everybody telling me I should write a book? I contemplated that and decided, well, you know, if I do write this book, I make it be able to do one of the three things that's very important to me, and that is to enable people to have a life that otherwise wouldn't have. So that was the genesis of this book.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I appreciate the theme, helping people have a life that they haven't had or, or didn't have at this point in time. You've really been on a journey yourself. You're trying to take us on a journey today. But you and I have had a chance to talk before the interview, and you didn't grow up with that uh, proverbial silver spoon, did you?
2: No, I didn't. And, you know, what I learned along the way was it doesn't matter really what happens to us. We have no control over that. It's how we respond to it. Hmm. And um, I remember one of my first memories as a small kid. I'm five years old. I'm in the broom closet, terrified, huddled with my sister who's six and our brother who's 11. And we are just, Doc, we're, we're crying. We're horrified. And we want to help. afraid to help. And we can hear outside the door the noise. And my father's cursing. And he's throwing things. And then we hear it. He hits my mother with a closed fist in the face, and we hear a smacker. Mm. And as she falls to the ground, she's begging him to stop, and he kicks her in the chest hard enough to where it inter- interrupts her speech. And as a kid, it really was very disturbing because I wanted to help but I was afraid to, but I couldn't, or I wouldn't let myself. Mm. Because a few months prior to that, I had been on, um, my brother and I had been fighting about something. He was 11, I was 5, and he, um, my brother and my dad came home, Asked what was going on, and I will never forget this. I'm 53. This is 48 years ago. i never forget to look at my father's face. His, his eyebrows came together. Uh, he, he showed me his very tobacco-stained teeth, growled his teeth. And um, then the look in his eyes at five years old looked like he wanted to kill me. And he beat me with this belt really, really bad. I can remember as the belt would hit me, before all the pain would come out of that one lick, he hit me again and again and again. And I remember at the time, Doc, thinking, there is no help. This is my world. And when he finally finished, uh, we had a lady that took care of us. She was a, a black woman. She picked me up in her arms, carried me back to the bedroom. I will never forget this that trip back there. She held me in her arms, and she's saying, It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And she got me in her lap. Hmm. She took my pants off, started putting salve on my bobos, and her telling me, It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, baby. And something hit me just out of the blue. I thought, I've never, ever felt this loved in my life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's not worth having going through what I just went through to get this.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, those experiences really shaped me, and what they taught me was what I didn't want to have, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, i spent my lifetime uh, having the life, a dream of my life and trying to help those around me. It is so important for any of us to help our neighbor, and the reason is it's not an expense of your energy. If you help your neighbor, you will benefit more than them. Because <laughs> what happens is, if I help you today, you may have a certain amount of happiness from that. However, I have all my happiness plus a blush of what I just gave you. Mm. So I believe the, the key to the world is if everybody woke up this morning, walked out their front door with the notion, as they meet people, they're going to live them better than they were when they met them, life will be better for all of us.
1: John, I so appreciate that perspective. Actually, every encounter, seeing what you can do to make a person's life better. I, I mean, is that really where you're coming from on a day-to-day basis?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give you an example. You know, one of the most underappreciated workers, I think, in the world are convenience store clerks.
1: If hmm.
2: you, you notice when you go in, people don't address them. They treat them like they're nobodies, correct?
1: Often. That's true.
2: And so I was then recently, I was in a store, and um, the, a patron was really being very rude to the lady, and she was trying hard, but there was, she had some difficulty. So when I walked up to, to to um to interact with her, I purposely made some little joke. I said, well, I hope you don't mess my up as bad as he does. I winked, and I exaggerated my response enough to know that she knew that I wasn't serious. And her whole demeanor changed, Doc. Her whole body posture, her face, her smile, her eyes, that happened six months ago. Mm. I am still benefiting from that. Mm. She benefited then. I'll benefit for many more months there's another store i go to that um i tease her like they go in there occasionally at night around 11 o'clock at night and she's a, a single woman and i tease her about her boyfriend and we laugh and joke about that but it gives me it, i don't know that it probably helps me more than them because i feel like i've helped them have a better day or better night and i, I live all these things every single person i do when i go through drive through or meet people I just think that I try to treat everybody the way I would like to be treated, and I try to make everybody have a better day because, you know, quite frankly, if everybody that woke up today, as they met people throughout the course of the day, tried to help others have a better day, what kind of world would we have?
1: No, it's a pretty remarkable uh, question, and I think it you know, brings, brings some uh, remarkable thoughts that come to my mind, and I'm sure everybody tuning in. John, what I find interesting, though, is somehow tied in with this perspective of of trying to be kind to people trying to encourage people trying to make a difference was a pivotal question that you apparently asked in your life and i know that because when i first heard about you it was in the context of asking a question about could the final four hours of your life change everything why is that such a, a pivotal question in your own experience
2: well, one thing i do not everyone want to do is regret and um about 12 years ago, I was contemplating what, what if I was, had four hours left to live?
3: Mm. Uh,
2: what would I, what would have happened in my life? What would I regret? What would have been necessary to happen over this lifetime? And it occurred to me, <clears throat> I said, well, what, that's us make believe, John, <clears throat> that you have four hours. What is most important to occur? And the things that I thought would be there weren't even there. Very simple things of little consequence or uh, great consequence. Man, I want to be. And I better be the spouse I intended to be, I'd Mm -hmm. like to have had. I want to be the kind of parent I would have liked to have had. Now, in my life, I didn't have those things as a kid. I had quite the opposite. So I want to do that for my family. Mm -hmm. But, Doc, I remember as a small kid when my father would be going to the house, beating my mother, beating us. and It wasn't just a beating. You were afraid somebody was going to die. Wow. And I can remember there was no help. So for me... I'm greedy about that. If I can help people for a better day, it makes my life better. So I succinctly say for me, I need those three, three things. I want to be the kind of spouse I'd like to have had, the kind of parent I'd like to have had, and to help other people. And I run my life that way in my business. If you come to interview for me to help you, I'm an investment manager. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine we're visiting. and It occurs to me that you're either a terrible father or you mistreat other people or you're not friendly or you're a bad spouse, <clears throat> bad parent. Mm-hmm. You do not have enough money to hire me. And here's why. If I allow you to hire me, that affect my momentum. You see, what I've learned over my lifetime, that those things that describe the, the, those important things in the last four hours are the ball of your momentum. And so your momentum carries you forward. It's an energy. You Imagine a ball with 50 rays of light pushing that ball. If you take a few rays of light away from the ball, it will still move, however not quite as efficiently. So in my life, if I violate the, the, the ball, the things that are most important to me, it affects my momentum,
3: mm-hmm. and it
2: does move as fast. Today, as we speak today, things seem to just fall into my lap. Life just seems to go my way, and I strongly believe it's because of my conversation every day in my pursuit of my last four hours.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk to to listeners right now. They're they're hearing you. They're saying, "Okay, this guy sounds like he had a pretty tough growing up," and some of them might be saying sounds tougher than I grew up with, or others are saying, boy, it doesn't sound like he knows what he's talking about. I went through a lot more than him. I, I know you haven't told us the half of it, and uh, maybe it might be, be, be worth talking about some of those experiences later on. But, but here's where I'm going with this, John. A person's listening. They're saying, how is this going to help me? The last four hours of my life... I'm going to be focused on other things beside trying to be the best spouse or the best father because I've got these uh, obligations or these. You know, I don't. I don't have my life insurance. So I take out a policy. It may be other focused, but it's going to look very different than what a person would do in their normal day to day living. Are you following along with what I'm asking?
2: Yeah, I do. But the point is, <clears throat> when we get to our last four hours, it's too late for anything.
3: Mm-hmm. it's too
2: late. Once you get there, you can do nothing. That's why you need to be there today at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old so that you can create the life you want to have. We're all going to have a life.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: or Is it going to be created by circumstance or by purpose?
1: So let me see if, I, if I'm if i understanding correctly this, this four-hour query. Is it more so you're saying not that someone spoke to you from, from heaven and said, you got four hours left. But rather, if I were to die in four hours, how would I want to be remembered? What would I want to be doing? What would people want to remember about me?
2: Well, for me, it's last for hours, what's most important to have occurred over my lifetime? Now my life is over, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. What
2: is most important to have occurred over my lifetime?
1: I see. So you're saying, think in terms of looking back at your life, your whole life, Every day, make this a, an exercise where you say, "If you were to, if you were going to die, and you're looking back on your life, what would you do over?" And with that perspective, start living that way. Do that do over right now. Is that the message?
2: It's a, it's, about, it's about planning your life. You know, mm-hmm. most people don't plan their life. So I think about what is most important to have occurred over my lifetime. What did I want to have done, accomplished? What matters to me? And then I'm going to focus my energy on that. We all have a finite amount of energy. I'm going to focus mine on achieving those things because once you get there, it is too late. You have no say.
1: No, I I think I I hear exactly where you're coming from. So let's go back to your background. A lot of people would look at a background like yours, and, and as you mentioned to me, there was, as you've shared on air, there was this pattern of abuse, physical abuse, your father beating your mother, your father beating the kids. What about the relationship between you and your mother?
2: Well, it was not a very loving relationship because my mother was always messed up, mentally messed up, and she was a bad, bad alcoholic. So we were six kids in my family. Uh, It's accurate to say I got the least attention of any of the six of us, but none of us got a lot of attention from mom because mom was always, she had um, bipolar and she had all kinds of disorders and she was an alcoholic. And um, So mom would come home from work sober, and she was sitting in this chair, and the first drink she was happy, and then she started crying, and we tried to console her It'd be eight, nine years old, say, Mom, it's going to be okay. And then at some point in time, she was sort of accusing or uh, attacking us for who we were, what we did. Mm. And then inevitably, it turned to, well, I'm just going to kill myself, I'm going to commit suicide. So, I, you know, none of us in my family had really had much of a mother relationship. I, I didn't. The most love I ever felt was from our maid.
3: Mm.
1: So I'm assuming if you had a maid, as far as. The veneer, as far as the world looking on, they would have thought you guys had some things together. I mean, you had you know, some reasonable income and things like that or not?
2: Well, I guess it would look that way. We had money trouble I and mean, Mom couldn't pay her bills. So, but we knew we were middle class, and that's also a fallacy. You know, The things we have don't make us who we are. And they don't make mm-hmm. us happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I'm an investment advisor, and I'll <laughs> tell you what. If you just pursue having more money, you're going to find that's an empty bucket right there. But we, we were middle-class people. You would think we were okay. Um, there was one time when the police did show up in my house, and I never knew whether that was because a neighbor called or whether my siblings called. But you would, you would think we were a normal, average American family. Nobody would know what was going on inside that house.
1: Wow. We're talking with John Neeland. John is sharing his own journey, an abusive uh, family setting, a mother who's an alcoholic with mental health disorders. If you're listening to the story, you'd say, boy, I mean, how can any... good come out of that. But John is making a huge difference, not, uh, not just in Indian country, but everywhere where people are listening to his message. We're going to be hearing more from John in today's edition of American Indian Living, and we'll be talking about his new book, something that can help you tap into his wisdom and his insights. Whether you're struggling with challenges in your life or whether you just need to refocus on some of the things that are already your priorities, stay tuned today. We've got a lot more coming up on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. I'm Dr. David DeRose.
0: Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE.
1: 1-800-775-4673. Here again
0: is Dr. DeRose.
1: You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with John Neeland. John has been sharing with us things that can change our life. Changing Our Perspective, Making a Difference in Our Outlook. He's the author of the book, How to Live the Life You've Yet to Dream. And John is also the president and investment advisor representative at JCN Financial and Tax Planning Group. John, I've been enjoying our dialogue, but you've got a lot more great stories. Tell us another one.
2: Well, one thing I've always been is a reflective person, and I'll never forget seventh grade. It was a tough, tough year. Went from elementary school to junior high school. And, um, you know, something was affecting me that I didn't know how to deal with effectively at the time, and that was fear. I had a lot of fear, but I didn't acknowledge the fear. And I was sitting in my science class, and we got our report cards. And I looked at my report card. I couldn't believe it. I had a D. Wow. I wasn't much of a student, but I always made A's and B's.
1: Uh And I was just
2: fiberglass. had a D. And I I looked at D, and I felt something. I felt it bother me, but I I wanted to look away. But finally I looked at the mirror, and I said, that's what it is. I do not feel good about me. Mm. I hate to admit it. What I had mentioned, my father was, was pretty tough on us verbally as well. we always putting us down. So, uh, but I didn't feel good about me. And I sat in class that day. I looked around the class, and I thought, that boy over there, I'm stronger than him. Mm. That boy over there, I can run faster than that boy. That boy over there, I'm smarter than that boy. That boy over there, he may be stronger than me, but I know I'm better looking than him. He may be the only guy I'm better, looking, I'm better looking than him. So I said, you know what? Man, everybody has something. Everybody does. Hmm. Nobody has everything. We all have something. So this summer, I'm going to work my rear end off telling myself I am something special. I'm going to tell myself this the entire summer. When I start school in eighth grade, I'm going to study hard, do my homework. I'm making straight A's. So I went home, Hmm. and I would tell myself to myself, you're something special. And the hair on my arms would stand up. It was so uncomfortable to say that. Hmm. I, I said it to myself. Every time I said it, the hair on my neck would stand up. I was just so embarrassed. But every day I did it. Well, eventually, I could say it to myself, and the hair wouldn't stand up. So then I started standing saying, oh, I said, man, you're something special. And the hair would go up again. But the more I said it, the easier it became. I started reading my brother's yearbook, my big brother. I read in a yearbook that said, often they said how funny he was. I said, you know what, I'm going to be funny next year, too. I'm make straight A's, I'm going to be funny. I can remember in my bathroom, brushing my teeth, telling myself on something special. Well, I'm here to tell you, I started 8th grade on the verge of cocky.
3: Mm.
2: I worked my rear end off, doing my homework, studying. I'd never, I've never in my life worked as hard in school as 8th grade. Well, I got my 8th grade report card. I made four A's and three B's. I got an introduction to physical science. But you know what? I'd done the best I could do. I was very happy. And you know what? If you read my 8th grade yearbook, you know what the kids said about me?
1: Tell me. I was
2: funny. Hmm. That was a pivot point in my life. I have five siblings. I'm not sure many of them had that pivot point. Hmm. And that's a real big deal because although we had uh, tough circumstances, if we don't look outside of those circumstances we allow those circumstances to define us, then we become them.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I find so interesting, John, and is you get this insight in seventh grade. A lot of times these insights that seem to come up out of the blue there's some reason for it. Sometimes we know what they are, other times we don't. I know in Indian country, many people who may have grown up with feelings of being inferior because of their native roots, sometimes something clicks. Maybe it's a tribal elder, maybe it's realizing uh, you know, something special about their culture, that they start to realize it. that they are special, that being native is special. It's not something that's, that's a negative. Uh, I know in other settings, People will say, well, it was in church that I got that, you know that there's a God who loves me. So there's something in the culture, in the spiritual environment, in the home. Did you have anything that you could put your finger on? Were there other influences beside that very oppressive home environment that was telling you you're nothing that made you brave enough or to at least think that you had to tell yourself you were special?
2: All I can tell you is I can remember being four years old, laying in my backyard as a small kid, and I'd look up at the blue, blue sky and the white clouds. I'd be looking, making images of those clouds, and I thought, well, man, this world is a huge place
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I can do anything. Nobody told me that. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, um, I don't think of anything special. I think I'm very ordinary. Mm-hmm. I, I am very ordinary. But I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the kind of house I've always wanted to be happy. Mm-hmm. As a, when all this happened in my household, I wanted to be happy. Happy to me was better than sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting in sixth gra- seventh grade and just recognized I didn't do very well. And I knew why I hadn't done well. I hadn't applied myself. I didn't have a mom or dad tell me to apply myself. I had to tell myself that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I knew what I wanted to have. I wanted to have a happy
1: life. So is it safe to say, John, that after seventh grade and eighth grade, your life just changed and everything was happy from then on? You never had any more setbacks?
2: Well, that wouldn't be accurate, no, but, um, but I have had a wonderful life.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know a little bit, I was kind of trying to ask you a leading question here, because you and I have talked some prior to the interview, but you did mention, just like your mom had some mental health issues, those crept into your life as well. Am I remembering that well, right?
2: Well, yeah, I did. I had a, the worst thing ever happened in my life. Uh, there's no, this actually diminishes what happened as a small kid in my house. But I started dating, I was in high school, I was 15 years old. And in the row in front of me, there was a girl with long brown hair turned around helping somebody with a chemistry problem. And I remember saying, gee, that's the kind of girl you'd marry. Hmm. She had the, the attributes that I thought were important. She was loving, caring, sharing, smart person. Those things really appealed to me. And um, I asked her at the homecoming, and I had the most wonderful month and a half of my life dating her then. Mm-hmm. But I came down with a... Uh, quite a horrific case of obsessive compulsive disorder that didn't. my father did not accept very well. And that was a, a monumental battle um, to get through.
1: Wow. Now, OCD, I mean, a lot of people, if they know the diagnosis, if they've heard of it, they think of someone with these compulsions, these obsessions. Maybe it's washing their hands. Maybe it's locking doors. Tell us a little bit about what you were experiencing.
2: Well, um, what's not shared on movies is what this counting or what this getting it right's about.
3: Mm-hmm. To
2: me, it was life or death for my girlfriend.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: if I didn't count properly um, or I didn't think properly or I didn't pray properly or I didn't feel right, bad thing is going to happen to her. And this girl was the blood in my veins, the savior of my life. Mm-hmm. I would wake up in the morning, and my first thought was, oh, my God, it's morning. How do I get out of bed? I had to count right, pray right, feel right, have the right rhythm getting out of the bed. had to feel right. And I would do that repeat over and over and over to get out of bed. Once I got out of bed, I had to walk around the corner of the bed. All the counting, the praying, and all like that. It was monumentally difficult just to get to school. And my family, my father in particular, really turned this against me in a big way. There was a Sunday. I can't recall the particulars about it. But uh, my father was very, um, he thought anybody with any kind of mental problem was a weak-minded, bad person. And, of course, I had this mental problem. And um, that Sunday, he and my mother and my big brother all ganged up on me for having this problem. Mm. And this problem—it was, it wasn't washing your hands was a problem. Getting it right was a problem. And um, the thing that was means the most in my world, my girl, who's now my wife—I was going to hurt her to getting it right. I could not afford to be irresponsible. I could not afford to take it easy to say, "Hey, you got your hands washed good enough, John," because this was the most vac- This woman here was my key to a great life. Mm-hmm. and she is my great life. Mm-hmm. So I had that issue, and then I, had a, um, I went through all the various therapies you can go through and the various medications. None of those medications did anything for me. And then um, eventually I was uh, referred to a neurosurgeon, and the surgeon had done, so he's the only doctor in the country that had been doing surgery for this OCD. And we met with him, and he said he'd done uh, about 20, and all but 20 had been successful. And I said, wow, what happened on those two unsuccessful ones? well, one patient had an aneurysm. There's no way for us to predict that. He died. I said, the other patient have aneurysm? No, no aneurysm. But um, he's the only patient I've done twice. I'll never do twice again because you don't know how much is enough and how much is too much. I said, well, did he, did he die? He said, no, he didn't die. I said, was he paralyzed? No, he wasn't paralyzed. I said, well, what was wrong with him? Well, John, um, he was highly un- unmotivated and hypersexual after the second surgery. Mm. I said, well, that sounds half bad, Doc, in a joke. And um, no, he goes, no, John, it was real bad, and they got divorced, and you know that's where he is. But that led up to me having my two surgeries.
1: Hmm. So presumably they were working on some of the tracts, the nerve fibers that go to the frontal lobe, something like that?
2: Well, a cingulotomy and a thalamotomy. Hmm. So you're awake during the surgery. And I was the happiest guy in the world to have this surgery, by the way. I had zero fear going into it because this was going to be an answer. And they put you in a halo traction, a metal traction around your head and they give you a pain shot where they're gonna screw it in and I can remember joking with the um the assistant doing this. I said, ladies, that's kinda of smart. Is that necessary? But they um once they once they get you in the halo traction, they uh take a drill and drill two holes on both sides of your head and they put a stimulator in there. And the stimulator stim- they want to stimulate the O C D reaction you're getting. And mm-hmm. when they once they get it, they burn it. Mm-hmm. And um it was kind of confusing for me. I didn't really know what they were doing. And so um uh, for a while, they're doing it, for instance, and I'm, I'm like, I'm watching a movie. I see me and my girlfriend at the park uh, visiting. And then um, I, I, all of a sudden, my right eye starts spinning right clockwise. My left eye spins, goes counterclockwise. I get very nervous. <laughs> I say,
3: hey, Doc, Doc, man,
2: my eyes are spinning, my eyes are spinning. I can't stop it. He, oh, John, I saw a problem. I said, bull, it's a problem. I can't stop it. And then he stopped it, right? But I will tell you, uh, there was no other time in my life ever as ten to eleven that day i 'll never forget that because every time they were stimulated, it would go
3: bzz, bzz.
2: and I felt a very mild level of depression huh. i didn 't realize they were doing this, and then in a mild level of anxiety
1: john we got to step away you 've got us right on the edge of our seats, and you 're getting this uh, brain surgery very dramatic. But we have to stop just for a moment. We're going to be coming back with John Neeland. We're talking about changing your own outlook, changing your perspective, some amazing stories, amazing insights that will change your life. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to American Indian Living.
0: American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero?
4: Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke.
5: Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit wrinstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter, The Will Rogers Institute Since 1936.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE,
1: 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and with John Neeland. John has been sharing with us. An amazing journey, a, a childhood that was anything but happy, dealing with uh, abuse, physical abuse, very dramatic physical abuse, dealing with a mother who was an alcoholic, with mental health issues. And now he's been sharing with us some of his own challenges. And if OCD doesn't sound like a uh, a terrible problem to you, I mean, John, I'm just, from a, from a physician standpoint, I'm listening in and I'm saying, I mean, your OCD must have been really bad if you were willing to undergo surgery, I mean, and especially when the surgeon told you he'd done 20 cases and 10% of them had turned out really bad, were you that bad off that you were open to this?
2: Well, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I was to a point where my OCD would not allow me to commit suicide, and I desperately wanted to, but wow. I couldn't. And so my thought was, this surgery means I'm either better or I'm dead, both places I'm in.
1: Whoa! So we're so we're back in the surgery room. That's where we we left off the last segment. And you were telling us that you know they're they're going into the brain. They're stimulating these different areas, and then they would stimulate one area, you'd feel kind of depressed. Another area, you'd feel kind of anxious. So was that all there was to it? And then you got up, and you're a new person.
2: There was a darkness to that feeling. I just I've never God, Lee. Anybody suffers from severe depression, I just have to give them all the empathy in the world because if, every time they would. Zap! and he got twice as
1: bad.
2: Wow. And finally, at 11.20, I screamed loudly on the operating table. I said, I can't stand this anymore! They zapped me again, and I came off the table, and then they quit stimulating area and had zero fear at all, none left. Huh. But for the rest of the day, I kept, the halo traction had some Roman numerals on the inside, but I kept reading back and forth those Roman numerals. And then at 6 o'clock at night, I fell asleep from exhaustion. And so, they couldn't complete the surgery, so I had to come back a month later and have it completed.
1: Huh. And so what was the result of that surgery?
2: Well, after the second surgery, it took me two years to recover. But I can remember the day that I'm driving down the interstate, and I passed underneath an overpass, and I thought to myself, I felt the electricity, the electricity over my body. I thought, wow, I used to feel like this. I used to feel like this. I came home. I told my wife, I "Said, honey, I used to feel like this." She goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "I just feel electricity." And um, I went back into business. I think 45 days after that,
1: hmm.
2: and never looked back. Wow. You know, one thing that really hurts me, doctor, that surgery. And there's one thing I guess, one pain I will have all my childhood, I can excuse and forget all that. I don't, I don't hold any baggage to that. But after that first surgery, I was terrified to go into the second surgery. I thought I was going to die, and the fear was what I was going to experience was going to be so difficult. And on the first surgery, I have five siblings
3: mm-hmm. and
2: a mom and dad. And on that one, my mom and sister showed up But on the second surgery. When I think I'm going to die, nobody from my family showed up for it. Mm. And as they're wheeling me back to the second surgery, my thought was, well, I guess if I die, they'll come to the funeral.
1: Wow. You've, you've been through a lot and a lot of people listening in, they can relate to what uh, you've been through. You've now written a book. Tell us, uh, the title of the book, and why someone would be interested in a book like this.
2: Well, if you don't have the life you'd like to have, this is the first step. Live the life you've yet to dream. You were taught so many things that don't help us have that kind of life. Think about dreaming. If you, as the listeners listen, think about dream right now for me. Dream what you want your life to be, be like, and notice how you put barriers on where you're allowed to dream. Hmm. You dream within the boundaries of what you think you can do or what others tell us can do, don't we?
1: Often well, that's true. But so we yeah. don't dream big enough.
2: So that's one thing. So by going through the – the as you go through the stories and you get to the last chapter, I really show you exactly how to plan that life, how how to identify the ball of your collective momentum, what is most important to have occurred in your lifetime, how to identify that, and how to make that part of your collective momentum so that as you go through your day, your energy is all harnessed in the same direction, pushing the ball in the same direction, and I teach the pivot points because there's some pivot points to this. You know, fear is one, a huge one. We often let fear make our decisions for us. Hmm. You know, fear is a great, it's a great motivator and a bad decision maker. Hmm. So I, I, I try to teach about fear, and I give you an example why fear doesn't matter to me so much anymore. Tell us. If I have a fearful experience that I'm going to come across right now, I realize first intellectually fear doesn't add anything to benefit to me. That's just an emotion. Mm-hmm. But we've been taught that since birth. Think about our kids. They, they become infants. They start crawling. And we tell them, don't, won't, can't, shouldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't. As they go through high school and junior high school, we're always telling them how to avoid things, how to fear this. And now our child goes to college, right? Mm-hmm. And we let our fear take, have a voice. Mm-hmm. Junior, you should get a degree in this or degree in this. That's where there's good money. That's where there's job opportunities. Mm-hmm. We're failing to ask Junior what he most wants to do. <laughs> right. My son graduated from LSU with a degree, and he didn't, want to, didn't know what he wanted to do. I said, what do you, what do you want to do? He said, I, I want to fly helicopters. I said, how do you know? I just think I do. I said, then let's find a helicopter school. So I, we found a helicopter school. He took the lessons, graduated, didn't get a single job offer for eight months after graduating. Wow. And then you know what? Now he's got a job. How happy is he today? He couldn't be any happier. Mm-hmm. My son is living the life he dreamed. Mm-hmm. But what if I let fear take a role in that, right? Graduate in college, apply here, get every job to you. Can get. What if was doing a job today that wasn't fulfilling? See, the problem with that is we all have a limited number of breaths at birth, right?
1: That's right. How many
2: do you want to waste? As you're a young person or middle-aged person, the best hours of your day are spent working. It should be something you really want to do. It should be something that makes others around you better. So fear is a horrible, horrible decision-maker, and we're fraught with it. Actually, we feel we're being responsible when we fear. Hmm. And I think that we in my household, I had an abundance of fear growing up.
1: I think those who've been with us from the top of the hour, I mean, they can understand why you'd be afraid. I mean, you opened up with a story where you're hiding in the closet and your father's you know, beating your mother uh, mercilessly.
2: Well, the point is... Another point is we have to control what we can't control. That's happened. It's over, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it? It happened. It was bad. I didn't like it. I wish it hadn't happened. But I'm not going to invest my energy in that. I'm just not going to do it. I've got a limited amount of energy. I'm invested in my three things. i to be the kind of spouse that I like to have, the kind of parent I'm going to have, and I want to help other people. So it's how we, how we judiciously manage our energies. So uh, those were bad times, but I would tell you that I had a great childhood, Doc. I really did. My wife still thinks I'm crazy. I had a wonderful childhood. Those were some bad points in a wonderful childhood.
1: Well, now, I think you had us all with you, you know, when you were saying, you know, we can forget those things that are behind us. I can move forward. I think we, we can all resonate with that. But now, after having told us about all the problems in the home, how can you honestly say, you had a wonderful childhood. What, what are you telling yourself? Oh, my yourself? God,
2: did I have a wonderful childhood. I had a, um, remember my
1: mother was always worried about money? Mm-hmm. So I was at eight years old,
2: I started mowing yards. And okay. I had a little yard mowing business. When I was 11 years old, I had bought a riding lawnmower, a self-propelled lawnmower, weed or edger. I had a regular business in the summertime mowing yards. Mm. I ran track. I played football. I was a good athlete. I played mud ball in the yard, rode bikes. Those were all wonderful, wonderful times. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying what my dad did wasn't bad. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. But I enjoy spending more time with the good times than the bad times.
1: That's great. That's great. I I mean, I I love your perspective because it's really the – The challenge that every single one of us have. I mean, good things happen and bad. And it seems in life for me as a physician, as I deal with patients, there are certain people that they come into my office and I probably see more that tend to focus on the bad because I'm seeing the people who are sick and can't get better and have the mental health issues and the physical problems. And they're often dwelling on all these terrible things that happened in the past. And it's almost justifying why they're so bad, why they have this disease, why they have this mental health problem. And what you're saying is your whole focus, at least not only in your own life, but in your work, as far as your motivational speaking, your book, How to Live the Life You've Yet to Dream, is telling people you don't have to be defined by your past, right?
2: No, we define our lives. Not what happens is we do. So my wife is wonderful. She's Literally, she is, that woman is the blood in my vein? My wife and my mind is perfect. But I will tell you, she, thinks she she will react to a bad thing differently than I will today. Hmm. I I pretty much immediately, when something bad happens to me, it, when it's over, it's over. And I I cannot tell you, I, I cannot possibly imagine dwelling on a bad thing. Good God, wasn't it bad enough to begin with?
3: Hmm.
2: Why give it more energy?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: You know, and I can understand where people. I can see people that do that. And every time I see this, you're cheating yourself. Hmm. You know, to put yourself at your last four hours, you just lost your job, big deal. You lost your house, big deal, but not a big deal. Do you have kids? How are they doing? Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. Do mm-hmm. you have a spouse? How are they doing? That's a big deal. So I think if we get to the end of our life... And we've been a good spouse, we've been a good parent, and we've helped other people. I don't see where we can ask for much more.
1: Now, of course, some people are going to want to throw into the equation some spiritual dimension. I don't feel that we need to go there on today's show, but I know for, for many of my listeners, even for myself, I mean, that's that's another one of those those huge issues that we're looking at, and sometimes that's destructive. People can have... Uh, spiritual conceptions of a higher power, a God that's very uh, uh, debilitating. They they think that uh, individual is looking down on them to judge them, to to put them down. Others, it's very freeing. And we've featured some of those those topics on the show in, in sensitive ways in the past. So we don't have to walk down that that path, John. But but here's where I want to go because this does interface with a a spiritual value across. Uh, denominational, across spiritual spectra, if you will, and it has to do with this concept of forgiveness. See, I, I've been listening to you talk about all these bad things that happened, and I'm, I'm trying to, to listen very carefully. Are you telling us about just forgetting things that have happened that have been negative, or are you talking about forgiveness on some level? Can you, can you help us uh, answer that question?
2: That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I think forgiveness is extremely important. My father, with all that he did, I gave him indelibly for everything he ever did about 12 years ago to his face. Let it go. Hmm. And, you know, I look at that, and some would say, how could you forgive your father? Well, here's why it's so easy to forgive him. I think my dad was doing the best he could do wow. at that moment in time. I think he was. mm I think we all do the best we can at that moment in time. And I love my father. I don't know that he loves me. He told us numerous times, I can't tell you I love you. You can love chocolate. You can love a woman. You can love a car. I just love me. Well, I love my father, Mm -hmm. and I completely forgive him. And had I not forgiven him, I don't know that could be there. I have a little brother that committed suicide in October. Wow. And I love that little brother. He was very, very, very dear to me. But my little brother never forgave my father. So I think forgiveness is very, very, very important. I think we, were, you have responsibility to love your neighbor. My other thought is I think mankind across this globe, I think we are one big organism. Hmm. I think you and I are related. Just like the foot connected to the the knee and the knee's connected to the, the thigh bone, all we can control is ourselves. So I think it's very important to give people. If I not forgiven my father, I can't imagine where I'd be here today, where I am today.
1: John, you've been sharing a lot that's got us thinking, got us uh, thinking about new possibilities. If you are someone who can relate, can empathize with what John's been talking about, if you've gone through difficulties in your life, or if you're in a great situation and just still have aspirations that uh, fear is holding you back from, we're going to talk more about John's book, How to Live the Life You've Yet to Dream. We'll talk about how you can pick up a copy of it, and we'll give you some more practical pointers that can make a difference in your life, make a difference in your family and your tribe, and beyond. Stay tuned. We'll come back with our last segment of American Indian Living right after this.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Dr. David DeRose back with the last segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. We've been speaking with John Neeland. John is the President and Investment Advisor Representative at JCN Financial and Tax Planning Group based in Louisiana. He is the author of the book, How to Live the Life You've Yet to Dream. John, I know uh, that book is filled with stories, interesting illustrations that are designed to help people uh, really be more like you aspire to be. That is making a difference in people's lives in a positive way. If someone wants to pick up a copy of the book, how's the best way to do it?
2: Probably just go to the website, com. Uh, now, you could also search Amazon for John Neeland and it'll come up. But on there, you'll have an opportunity to buy the book and um, see a lot more about our movement and what we're trying to share with other people.
1: Okay, so your your name is a difficult spell for most people. Neeland, it's spelled N E Y L A N D, right?
2: Yeah, or Diz, Disneyland without the Diz.
1: Oh, okay, so literally it really is, N E Y L A N D. And your first name, John, is J O H N. Right. So if I just put in com, that's your website? Right, right. Okay, now let's just be be real frank. A lot of folks listening, they're going to say, hey, sounds like a great book. I'd like to learn from this guy. He, he drew me in. I can relate to him. But other people, they may not be much for reading. They may not want to put out the money. You've got other stuff on the website, though, that's free that people will enjoy, right?
2: I think so, Um. A couple things I think are really neat. One young man I started mentoring 17 years ago was living at times with his mother, at times by himself at 13 years old. Came from the toughest kind of life, no support to go with. And um, he has, over the last 17 years, become a, a raving success. He's uh, 30 years old now. He's got four children, he's got his own construction business. And if you go to the website and you go to the home section or to the people section, He's actually got a video there where he talks about what this relationship's meant to him. Hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I, I watch him from time to time just to, to view it again myself.
1: Hmm. Just to kind of inspire you with how you're making a difference in people's lives.
2: It's kind of hard to believe. I didn't do that much for him. I was just there for him. Uh, another young man was uh, playing volleyball in the backyard a couple of years ago, and he was um, grew up real, real tough. Nobody in his family was doing well, single mother, and you know, just people that um, – Both of these young men are kind of people that I think society just uh, writes off. And um, Mm I invest tremendously in them. He was telling me he got a scholarship to the New York Film Academy in uh, Los Angeles, California, but he wasn't going. And when I found out he wasn't going because he didn't have the um, – the scholarship didn't cover room and board. And I thought about it for a day or two, and I called him back and said, Chris, you're going because I'm going to pay you room and board. And you can watch their videos, which I think Mm -hmm. are – it just goes to show you that we have the ability – to help other people have a life that others wouldn't have. In some ways, if we can save a life like this, it's a bigger, it's a bigger accomplishment than, than having our own child, than birthing our own child. I believe it's, uh, it's. I think it's different.
1: Wow. Now you are a person who's invested your life in other people. It's obvious as we listen to some of these anecdotes. But at the same time, you shared with us in the last segment. You came from a family where basically. Your father said he could never love you or couldn't say that he loved you, and that had to have some impact on you, didn't it? I mean, how could you love other people if you came from an environment where you were told you couldn't be loved? I mean, was that not something you struggled with?
2: Oh, it was difficult because I met my girlfriend, and we'd walk around to high school, and she'd tell me how she loved me, and that just, oh, my gosh, my skin would crawl because I knew I felt like I loved her, but I couldn't say that to her. And I would tell her, I like you a lot, like you a lot. I did that for the first six months or so, and I regret that. If I could do anything over again, I, I, would, I would change it. I would tell her I loved and cared about her.
1: So what was the breakthrough? Where where could, where did you come to the point where you could tell her that you loved her?
2: Yeah, I thought about it one day. I said, you know, I do love this girl. I love everything I am. I said, I'm a teller lover. I'm a lover. But I do love her, and I love my children, and I love other people. And I've, on my website, you'll see three of the anniversary v- movies I've made. Any of your listeners that watch these videos? Mm-hmm. Well i have never seen anything like this before where a husband has made a movie about the anniversary for the spouse.
1: Oh, so you're saying like on your wedding anniversary, you actually make a movie for your wife? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. I've got three of them on there and there. Believe me, you can watch them, Doc. You will like them. Two of them, I have my children's interviews on there where they've interviewed my children. Mm-hmm. Um, that's on the 33rd and the and 25th anniversary. But they're, they're set to music and I'm very, very proud of them. I watch them regularly.
1: Wow. So so basically, we can go to that website, John Neyland, and that's J-O-H-N-N-E-Y-L-A-N-D.com, and we can watch free videos. Yeah,
2: <laughs> under the people section of the, of the website.
1: And it's not like, you know, once we get into it in about five minutes, there'll come a screen say, if you want to see the rest, you've got to pay something like that. No,
2: there's no pay for this. It's, okay. you know, I'm not in this for money. matter of fact, all the nonprofit stuff I've done so far has been out of my pocket. Uh, the books, by the way, if you buy the book, I donate the entire amount to the nonprofit. So okay. I pay for the, I pay for the, the production of the book, and then uh, donate your entire contribution uh, to the cause.
1: And so, what is the nonprofit? What are you doing with your nonprofit organization?
2: Well, we've got you know small goals and bigger goals. I'm mentoring these young men right now, and then we're moving into the schools to where we're going to. Um, Make make families out of schools. So go into an an underprivileged part of town, Mm -hmm. and we're going to envelop that school. We're going to help those kids to not just have reading and writing arithmetic, but to try to teach them why they're valuable, how they're valuable, and to support them and guide them from fourth grade up through college. Mm -hmm. And I plan on doing this around the country. So with my business, I've got business connections around the country, and I can uh, once we get a school here in Baton Rouge doing this with. Uh, and I did a little bit of this with the young man, Ashton Carter, that's on the video. I would like to have this around the country. And I'm going to start that part of it in two years when I'm 55. But currently, I'm just helping people, local people in my community.
1: Mm-hmm. So this show is listened to by people across the age range. I mean, there's young folks that listen to it, people in the mid midlife years, people late in years, tribal elders, people who are not Native, people on reservations, people who have never uh, never set foot on a reservation. So, I mean, we've got this whole spectrum of people. I'm thinking of one segment of the population that might be listening along. I'm thinking of, of elders, whether they're in Indian country or, or somewhere else today tuning in. Um, people can listen to the podcast all over the world. Uh, how about that person who really says, you know, this guy's talking about what would I do if I've you know only got four hours left to live? I, I don't feel like i got much time. I mean... I've outlived my mother, outlived my father, uh, outlived my siblings, or whatever the scenario is, or they just got a bad diagnosis. Is it ever too late for someone to kind of rewrite their life history?
2: You can't rewrite your life history, but the history from this moment on we can write. Hmm. So you can't rewrite what's been done. Hmm. But, you know, I'm 53, and I don't know if I've got 54 in my my future, any more than the 90-year-old knows that they have 91 in their future.
1: (laughs) Good point, good point.
2: And I think that in the end of the day, in the book, I talk about controlling what you can't control. So we can't control how long we're going to be here, but I can control this moment. And the moment we have right now today will never have never been here before and won't be here after it's gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I will tell you this, I'm, I'm a public speaker. I'm paid to speak to different corporations. But any Indian tribes that would be interested in have me speak, I will waive my, spe- my speaking fee to speak at their organization.
1: Wow. I mean, that is very challenging. Uh, I have a
2: big affinity for the American Indian population.
1: Well, let me ask you this. So someone's listening right now. Maybe they are a tribal elder, tribal leader, uh, maybe on a tribal council, whatever the scenario is, and they say, you know, I like what this guy's saying. I'd like to, to book him to, to speak at some tribal event, whatever. Do they just go through your website? Is that the best way to contact you?
2: Yeah, it's on speaking on speaking request. Just go there, and there's a place where you um, you request it on the website. Um, Put your name, email, phone number, or then call me as well. My number here at the office is 225 755
1: 0488. Okay, let me make sure I've got that. So the phone number 225 755 0488? Yeah. Okay. And the website again, John Neeland, J O H N N E Y L A N D dot com. John, our time is uh, rapidly slipping away from us. Before we close out the show, I you know, I like to give you an opportunity because we've talked about a lot and we've been talking for an hour. Folks have heard bits and pieces of the show. Some have been with us from the beginning, but if someone is saying, "Okay, a lot has happened, John shared a lot. What message do you want to leave them with as we close the show?"
2: This moment matters. Make the most of it.
1: Wow. Powerful words. You've been listening to John Neeland. He is an author. He is a financial advisor. He runs a nonprofit. And most importantly, not only is he trying to make a difference in the lives that he touches, he's willing to touch your life and to touch the life of people in your tribe. If you're looking to book John for a speaking event, he gave out his contact information. I'll give it one more time, 225-755-0488. And his website, again, John Neeland. That's J-O-H-N. N-E-Y-L-A-N-D dot com. If you want to connect with John or if you want to read his book, How to Live the Life You've Yet to Dream, you've got that information. And for those of you that are regular listeners, if you haven't tried it already, if you ever miss contact information like that, just call the station. We send out a regular information piece to each network that carries the show. Well, we've got to run. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show has made a difference for you. It will help you Accomplish your dream just a little bit more likely, at least, to do that. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm, as always, wishing you the very best of health.
5: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.